guys, welcome to Craft. I'm your host, Christina Tucker, and I'm here with co-host Jen Troyer. Hey guys! Today we will be continuing the story we've told you over the last two episodes. So if you haven't listened to them, go back and check those out before we continue. This is a story about how America's favorite sports hero went on trial for a gruesome murder. In this episode, we talk about how the prosecution and defense go head-to-head to fight for justice and defend their stances, and how it truly is the trial of the century. This is the story of O.J. Simpson. Again, I do want to stress that this case contains mature content and we don't recommend listening if you're under the age of 13. We are going to be discussing some very heavy race issues that may be sensitive to certain listeners. We will also be talking about domestic violence, so be advised of that as well. I do want to make note that you can follow along with us on our website. We will have photographs posted under this case's page. Please view these at your own discretion, for they are a little graphic. We ended our last episode right after opening statements in the trial. If I remember correctly, Jen, you were very eager for this episode. Oh my gosh, yes. I had to stop myself from doing my own research. Well, I'm glad you waited, because I'm going to take you through this mind-boggling trial today. After the defense's opening statement, the prosecution needs their own wow moment, so they take the jury to see Nicole's house on Bundy Drive where the crime occurred. Then the defense argues that if the jury gets to see Bundy, they should see Rockingham as well. Wait, why would they go look at the defendant's house if no one was killed there? That's a great question. The prosecution kind of asked the same thing and said, um, what? But the judge allowed this. The defense actually went over to Rockingham before the viewing and took down all of OJ's pictures with his white businessman friends and put up pictures with black people in them to, quote, make OJ blacker. What? Can they even do that? I mean, I don't 100% know how all of that works, but, but they didn't get into any legal trouble, so I'll assume that it is legal. One of the first few people to testify is Nicole's sister, Denise Brown. She told the jury about OJ and how he would get so angry he'd knock down all of the pictures off the wall and make Nicole clean them up. He also called Nicole a, quote, fat pig while she was pregnant. Oh my gosh, this guy's awful. Yeah, he really is a terrible person. And something else that's crazy is that when the jurors were asked later, they said they had a hard time seeing how any of this domestic violence was even relevant. Wait, what? What do you mean? It's literally showing what OJ was like behind closed doors and what he was capable of. I know, I don't understand how that doesn't make sense to people. Ron Ship also testified. He wasn't originally going to, but once he saw the crime scene photos, he said he had to because, quote, only a monster would do something like this to the mother of your kids, end quote. Only a monster would do something like this in general. Good point. (laughs) During Ron's testimony, he tells the jury about how OJ told him of dreams he had of killing Nicole. The defense calls him Judas, and they even brought up his drinking problem while he was on the stand to question his credibility. Marsha Clark made a comment in the OJ Made in America documentary about how OJ knew when the camera was on him and he would smile and look polite, and as soon as he was out of the shot, he would go back to normal. Of course he would. One of the biggest things in this case is all of the physical evidence that leads directly to OJ. First things first is OJ's hand injury. And then you have the fact that there were blood drops coming from the left side of the perpetrator's body fleeing the scene that matched OJ. They also had blood from Ron Goldman, Nicole, and OJ inside OJ's Bronco. They also had samples of Ron and Nicole's blood, hair, and fibers that were found on the glove at Rockingham. 
There was also blood in OJ's driveway and inside of his house. All of these samples were tested at multiple different labs and the results were all pointing the finger at OJ Simpson. Holy moly, literally he had to have done it. Yeah, it seems obvious, doesn't it? Both teams come to the conclusion that whoever wore the gloves that night is responsible for the murders. The problem, however, is that because of all the blood and fibers on the glove, the material shrunk. The defense told the prosecution that if they didn't have OJ try on the glove, the defense would do it themselves. Darden really wanted to have OJ try on the glove because he thought it would be this major gotcha moment. When OJ tried on the glove, he wore a latex glove underneath, and as you may have guessed, the glove didn't fit. Wait, shoot. This makes him look innocent. I know. Some members of the jury later on said that they believed the prosecution up until this point, but once he tried on the glove, they stopped listening. Another person that plays a monumental role in this trial is Mark Furman. In 1985, nine years before the murder, Furman was dispatched to Rockingham because of a domestic dispute. When he arrives, he sees OJ holding a baseball bat. Nicole's car window had been smashed and she was sobbing. Furman tells OJ to drop the bat three times. Finally, on the third time, OJ's face snaps out of his terror and he begins to act polite and put the bat down. Nicole never filed an official police report for this incident. Fast forward 10 years to the trial, the defense is trying to accuse Mark Furman of planting the glove at Rockingham. Why would Furman have planted the glove? Well, Furman had a few instances in his past where he used very racially insensitive slurs and talked about horrific things. The only reason the prosecution even put Furman on the stand was so that the glove found at Rockingham could be admitted into evidence. During the cross-examination done by Dream Team member F. Lee Bailey, Furman said that he never uses the N-word and that he has never called anyone that face-to-face. -face. Later, these tapes emerge of Furman from years prior when he was interviewed for this fictional book and he was discussing the black community. He talked about framing people and he used very derogatory language. This doesn't necessarily mean that he's an authentic racist, but it does mean that he's prepared to act like one. Only two excerpts of the tape were played in court, but it's still not pleasant to listen to. When asked afterwards if Furman lied in his statements, he pled the fifth. If Furman falsified his police reports, he pled the fifth. And when asked if he planted the glove at Rockingham, please tell me that he didn't plead the fifth. He pled the fifth. Ugh, this is not good for the prosecution. No, it is not. But on the positive side, for Furman to have placed the glove at Rockingham, he would have had to have known that OJ didn't have an alibi, which he didn't know at the time the glove was found. Oh yeah, right. I didn't even think about that. When it was time for closing arguments, the defense did wonderfully. Cochran came up with this catchy little phrase, quote, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit, end quote. Of course, he was talking about the glove and how the jury needed to acquit OJ. The heart of his summation was basically asking the jury whose side they were on. He actually went as far as to compare Furman to Hitler. Are you joking? I wish I was. Marsha Clark said that she was angry because Cochran took an issue as serious as racial injustice to defend a man who wanted absolutely nothing to do with the black community. On Friday, September 29th, 1995, the jury begins deliberations. How many days do they deliberate? Well, here's the real kicker. The jury deliberated for three and a half hours. What? They came to a verdict that fast? I know, I was absolutely stunned. It was a 267 day trial, 1,105 pieces of evidence, 45,000 pages of court transcripts, 
and 133 witnesses, and they deliberated for three and a half hours. So what was the verdict? O.J. Simpson was found not guilty. Are you kidding me? I know, it's astonishing. Mm -hmm. Half of the people were shocked and angry, and the other half were over the moon. Joy erupted outside the courthouse because of all of the African-American community. They felt like justice had finally been done. Up until this point, the court system had wrongfully convicted many African-American defendants based solely on the fact that they were black. I get that, but you also can't not convict someone just because they play the race card. I agree. I think it was wrongfully used in this case and that since OJ wanted nothing to do with the black community, then race really shouldn't be a factor. After the verdict, Robert Shapiro went on television and said that using the race card was a poor decision. He also said that he would never work with Johnny Cochran again and that he wouldn't even speak to Ethley Bailey again. Oh, so they were turning on each other. Yeah, the dream team isn't looking so dreamy right about now. After the acquittal, OJ tried to get back to Brentwood and fit in with his old posse. The problem was that no one trusted OJ anymore. OJ developed a very good relationship with this one author and he asked her, quote, hypothetically, if I killed her, it was just because I loved her so much, right? End quote. Oh my gosh, that's like as close to a confession as you're gonna get. Well, you'd think so, but they actually got closer. Mike Gilbert, a friend of OJ's, went over to Rockingham one night and asked OJ what actually happened on the night of the 12th. Gilbert explained his theory and OJ responded with, quote, yeah, if Nicole hadn't opened the door with a knife, she'd still be alive right now, end quote. Mike Gilbert knew that that was a lie when he looked OJ into the eyes. It hit him then that OJ went to Bundy Drive that night with the intention of slaughtering Nicole in cold blood. I hate this guy so much. Me too. He is a very bad dude. Later on, the Goldbanks file a civil case against OJ and he is found responsible for their deaths. OJ then owes $33.5 million in judgments. Down the line, OJ gets involved in some very sketchy stuff in Vegas. There was supposed to be this fake robbery that actually turned out to be real and he gets arrested. He is found guilty and gets a 33 year sentence. Most people think this goes along with the $33 million from the civil case. Oh shoot, yeah, that does make sense. Judith Regan was an author and she was trying to get a confession out of OJ. In this book, OJ says, quote, if I did it, I could not have done it alone, end quote. The interviewer also explains how OJ fled the crime scene and OJ actually corrects him and tells him how he actually would have left the crime scene. Of course, this is all hypothetical, and I know you can't see my hands right now, but there was definitely air quotes around that. Oh my gosh, it's like he wants people to know he did it. Yeah, and I think a part of him almost does. That book is called If I Did It, for those of you who want to read it. The rights to that book were actually purchased by Ron Goldman's family. Thank you guys so much for following this case. Please be sure to give us a follow on Instagram at crack.crime.podcast and Twitter at crackedcrime. You can also visit us on our website, which is linked in our bio. Feel free to send us an email with any case suggestions or questions regarding this case at crackedcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much, and be sure to tune in next time for Cracked.